Welcome to the Thrive Space Podcast, conversations that cultivate your heart and your company. I'm John Erickson here with my co-host, Dennis Humphrey. We're both business owners who love to develop other thriving leaders who understand how to lead from their hearts. Every month, we have an ongoing discussion with leaders like you and those who support you. Our guests range from company owners, experts in various fields, stakeholders in business, industry, education, healthcare, among many other fields. Our desire is for you as a leader and for everyone you influence to thrive. Hello, I'm Dennis Humphrey and welcome to the Thrive Space podcast. Let me begin with a couple of important questions for you as a leader. How much do you think relationship conflict costs your business? How well do you and your team deal with a crisis? Today, we will continue to highlight an area of our consulting that we believe is a critical need right now. It is a focus that can bring immediate and productive value to you and your company. For the last 30 years, John and I have been involved in developing leadership in the US and internationally. Our focus, of course, is on their hearts. We also collaborate with many of the organizations and businesses those leaders guide and direct. We listen and discover together how to overcome roadblocks, minimize loss, create efficiency, and plan future direction. A difficult challenge, of course, is a dynamic of relational conflict or crisis that demands immediate intervention. Crisis and conflict are two areas that need creative, advanced preparation and wise, careful attention in the moment. We will bring you understanding and perspectives, resources, tools to address crisis and conflict in ways that reduce costs and allow for healthy recovery. Last month, we began a conversation about reducing crisis and conflict with Daniel Teeter at Live at Peace Ministries. We have asked him back to continue our discussion as we look at the power of shame in conflict and discuss the benefits and challenges of the conflict conciliation process. Lastly, we will offer a model to help navigate from chaos of conflict to a place of restoration and recovery. Daniel, what jumped out for me in your comments was the idea of drivers. We walk into every relationship, personal, business, or family with things that drive us, and often they are one or more needs. Then you brought in the issue of shame. John and I spend a good amount of time addressing shame, and one of the steps in our conflict model identifies the shame issues that will cloud a person's perspective, not only of themselves, but of the other. Uh, This is especially true in business, and we we like to uncover the needs that drive the conflict and the shame element that's operating in the company culture that's thwarting a healthy culture and unity. We also don't see how shame, for example, will also enter the equation and be at work within the the operating system. And I tend to tell people, think about, it's like, what relational operating system or code are you running on? And sometimes it gets corrupted by trauma, by shame, by things that have affected us. And we don't even recognize it's happening. We can only discern it by evaluating and observing the relational fruit that code is producing. And so often you can see it in interpersonal conflict, for example, you can see what relational code or operating system is driving the situation. Daniel, I'm wondering, uh, our experience is that a lot of people hear the word shame, but they do not understand what it means. Can you give us a brief definition? What are we talking about when we say shame? Yeah. So 
Brene Brown describes shame as a sense of fear of a lack of belonging. I don't, I am unworthy of belonging. So that's one definition of it. Uh, another psychologist uh, tends to focus more on the neurological experiences of shame, such as uh, he has a book called The Soul of Shame, where he will dissect how it affects your limbic system. It's a shearing effect that it occurs inside of us where he talks about it as a harbinger of abandonment. So imagine this dashboard that suddenly starts firing and that little light, whether we realize it or not, is basically telling us there's something about you that's defective or wrong that's going to make you unworthy of connection. And it's a connection that your brain and body and heart knows it needs to survive. And so it becomes an almost traumatic experience internally when that sensation is present. But most of us don't realize that's even what's happening inside of us. It just happens within a half second. And then we react out of it and it creates usually a lot of mess. Um, so shame to me is giving even leaders the ability and language to make sense of the sensations of shame in their body is so critical and vital because often when I'm even working with either leaders or people in counseling or coaching, whatever it would look like, even getting them to recognize that that's a factor can, can actually create shame. It's like, what do you mean I have shame? I'm ashamed that I have shame. I can't talk about shame and shame will thrive in the unspokens. Um, and so being able to speak it, being able to invite conversation around it helps actually give language, but also helps people move towards identifying it. It's not a nameless enemy anymore. That resource you're talking about, Kurt Thompson, and he's the neurobiologist that did a lot of actual studies of the brain. And uh, the book, uh, The Soul of Shame, is the one you referred to. And he talks about the voice, what, what I've labeled as the voice of shame. Um, it isolates us and uh, it divides us. It, it literally divides our brain so it can't work. Uh, it can't connect properly. And it moves us to isolation, a place to want to hide, which are the natural responses to, uh, to shame. And he has a number of antidotes to that. And it's interesting that idea of uh, shame is a critical element of why we get into conflict. Often, and this is what we want to highlight, of course, as we're talking today, is this, this idea that uh, conflict is something that is inevitable because shame is inevitable. And the voice of shame is always telling us part of the truth of ourselves and the people that we're talking around and, and about and to. This idea of how shame feeds into and in many ways is the cause, at least the initial cause of why we get into conflict. Talk a little bit around that for us, Daniel. Yeah. So I'm a father of four kids. And just even this morning on the road, I saw how shame operates in conflict. We get in the vehicle and one of my kiddos looks to the other one and says, you've left this in the car again. And suddenly within a half second, there was a shame reaction that was very, very pronounced. It was, no, well, you did this. You, I don't, this is not going to affect you. And it's immediate and instantaneous. And you don't have to coach anyone because it happened like that. And so I tried to first regulate my reaction because we were, you know, needing to get to school, but regulate my reaction and then invite both of them into a different kind of engagement. And I said, Hey, it sounds like you were feeling like you were being judged right? With that word again, <laughs> like you've done it again. Um, and so maybe instead of reacting, you can actually just tell your sibling what you're feeling and why you're feeling the way you're feeling. And so 
you know, yeah, I'd say it's maybe 25% successful in that situation. Um, and so yeah, as parent, I'll take it as a win. But the reality is that's even just a small example of how shame can show up very quickly in our operating system. And we don't even realize it, that that's what we're reacting out of. Where have you seen that dynamic happen in organizations in the corporate world? It's amazing to me when something can be resolved with a simple, I was wrong, or I messed up, that you'll see the dance of shame. And instead of simply moving to the place of vulnerability, let's say a leader really truly, he doesn't understand something. And instead of acknowledging, hey, I'm not quite getting this, go down and try this again. I'm just truly am not understanding. Shame would show up and narrate a story, which is as a leader, you can't be incompetent. Now, it's not incompetent to have limits, right? But that's the story that shame takes. It takes partial truths, partial data points, and constructs a whole lie of your story. And then instead of being able to say like, yeah, I've got a limit. I'm not going to understand everything. Now you're suddenly feeling like you actually have to know and respond to everything and live more than human and live beyond human limitation. And so that's how even shame in those tiny moments can show up for a leader. Or like I said, you make a mistake and rather than just having the humility or the grace to say, you know, I messed up, I messed that up. Can we try this again? Which by the way, boy, talk about being able to actually rewire relational operating systems, repair. They've done studies with parent and children, but it also extends to adults where a parent will only be attuned at best 50% of the time to their child, right? So rupture happens in relationship all the time, but how a parent repairs and moves towards repair can actually strengthen the rupture that happened in the bond even more strong than when, when before the actual rupture happened. And it's same is true in our adult relationships. Think about a conflict you've had where it was in the process of repair, where you actually ended up experiencing more intimacy, more closeness, because someone really took responsibility. They acknowledged there was harm, they acknowledged there was hurt. And so I just want to say, we even know this, but then when shame takes over, we move away from weakness. We move away from anything that will tell us we're less than, that we're, there's something wrong with us, that we're powerless, and that it's all our fault. And we're going to experience rejection or abandonment as a result. And that's often what I tell people is like, hey, you'll know shame's narrating your story when you start to sense themes of powerlessness that you can never change, you're helpless never going to be able to change this. You also will notice things like it's all your fault. It's totalitizing as well as it's relational that it will create a sense of permanent disconnection, rejection, or abandonment. We've seen time and time again, all of the realities that you're talking about when it comes to how shame affects and in many ways catalyzes conflict. I'd like you to talk just a bit about how you at, and at Live at Peace use the tool of conciliation. Yeah. So conciliation, for those who are not familiar with the term, it's simply a way of, of saying we want to resolve conflicts in a non-adversarial way, in a conciliatory way, meaning with looking at one another's interests by seeking out peace and harmony together. So conciliation at its core is a form of what would be called alternative dispute resolution, ADR for short. And it's a way of trying to resolve conflict. It's actually even a field, believe it or not. There's people that have practiced this for a long time, and there's continued disciplines and journal articles that are being written about it. And so there's been a discipline for quite some time that's 
I think getting even more sophisticated. In fact, actually soon I'm going to be participating and Emory University is even hosting a cross intersectional faith dialogue around religious mediation and arbitration in the United States. And what I'm actually going to be focusing on is uh, power and abuse dynamics in conciliation, because that's often what I would say would be it's would be a potential weakness is if you enter into a conciliation, any form of mediation process, and you do not see or are aware of the kinds of imbalances that exist within that dynamic, you could potentially set someone up for harm. So what does that mean for leaders? Well, it means I think you have a responsibility if you're going to try to help people solve and resolve their conflicts in healthy ways, you have to calibrate the settings to see and and understand power. And, And that might mean you have to go a lot slower than you'd like to, because you may want to try to just get it done and get people apologize so you can move forward. But If you move too quickly, too fast, and there are power dynamics in the room that you don't see, you have the potential to really harm someone. And so that would be a criticism or a critique I would have because conciliation, when you bring people together in a room, you are assuming often the structure, it assumes equality, neutrality, mutuality of conflict. And sometimes that isn't true. And if it's not true, then you have to kind of recalibrate the settings to actually help adjust for that power imbalance. Daniel, what's the difference uh, between uh, conciliation, mediation, arbitration, some of these alternative methods uh, that we use to solve conflict? Yeah, so conciliation and mediation, I often use synonymously. I'm sure that there's probably someone out there that might disagree with it, but those two words tend to be synonyms for me. That when I do conciliation, the way I'm doing conciliation is by offering a mediated process. And so arbitration is when you basically, someone is making a ruling that often is legally, it's legally binding, but it still falls under the umbrella of outside of the judicial court system. Uh, You basically, people would voluntarily submit themselves to an arbiter or someone who has uh, either positional authority to make a decision or render a decision. And usually it requires parties signing some sort of consent form that agree to the arbitration and agree to to actually abide by whatever the decision is and actually let me make a let me make a special note because what uh, another area of problem that has arisen in my opinion is that these clauses they're called ADR clauses are actually being used by businesses and churches and organizations to force people when they're leaving an organization in conflict or there's been some sort of issue. Now, I understand why that could be helpful for an organization, but I also just want to offer a possible third way. And that is instead of mandating and forcing people into ADR, which is forcing them to do a mediation, you don't have to force them. You can offer it. Now, all the lawyers are probably saying, shut up, don't listen to him right now, because that's going to make you legally uh, at risk. And you know what? You're right. It is. But I think that there are, there are reasons, and, and uh, this is my own personal opinion. I think there's things that are worth being able to like say, I'm doing this because of a moral or ethical like perspective. I think this is the right thing to do, and I'll take the risk. I'll put myself out there because I think in handling this well, because I want to treat people well, then that's why I would advocate that that might be a better solution. Don't force it, offer it and let them have, and let them decide whether or not they're going to pursue that. No, that makes sense because companies 
in general want to protect themselves. That's why they have lawyers. Mm -hmm. They want to avoid litigation as mm -hmm. much as they can because it's expensive. Mm -hmm. and, and in some ways, the offended party, or in some cases, the abused party, doesn't have the resources to face the company when it comes to a, a litigated process. So maybe an arbitration or a mediation is more fair for them if mm -hmm. the power dynamics are handled well. Yeah. Another question I have around this would be, how do you use a conciliation process or an ADR clause uh, if you're dealing with real conflict and someone in our environment, it happens pretty regularly, someone says, I feel like I've been abused in some way. I feel like my supervisor or my situation put me in a place where I have suffered some kind of abuse. It's not being uh, recognized, the person's not acknowledging it. Uh, what, what are my recourses here? You are raising all of the hot button issues that I have strong opinions about. And in this case, what I would say is, I jokingly was doing a, a workshop on this topic and I jokingly said, now, to repeat after me, we don't conciliate, we investigate. Um, because I, what I would want to help avoid is when there are allegations of abuse, I would hope a company, a leader, would instead of trying to throw people together in a room <laughs> to mediate that, they would start with a more helpful basic step, which would be to have a process that would investigate those allegations in a healthy and appropriate way. Often I would advocate for a third party um, doing that, not an internal investigation, um, that that's healthy best practice. And so what I would say, if I'm speaking to the leader, make sure that you actually have your in your HR portfolio, a very clear process by which to handle abuse allegations as they arise. I also would say for the person that's saying I've been harmed, in a context of a business or a leadership structure, then first, you know what is available to you. What are the protocols within the company? I would hope there was whistleblower policies. I would hope that there are things that at least you are aware of that would make it safer for you to be able to advocate and share what is needed. But it's often not quite so <laughs> simple, even if there are policies on paper, because we all know companies can have aspirational values, but not have actual ones. And so they could say all the right things, but actually functionally not behave in ways that are consistent with it. And so it, it is tricky. If someone is saying, I have been experiencing this kind of experience, I would want to help empower them with options is essentially if I was working with them and say, here are your options. Here are the, here's the kind of costs and the benefits of this potential option versus this one. What do you think is going to be best to help you heal and thrive moving forward? So I would be helping them to kind of notice what their options are. We have to have a thoughtful, practical, and healthy way to address conflict that we've thought about in advance and that actually creates an environment, a safe place for employees uh, to believe that their concerns are going to be addressed well. Daniel, Dennis and I have developed a five-step path that we like to take people down when we uh, are helping them address conflict in a healthy way. We believe that conflict can actually be productive, that you can lower or redeem the costs of it, the pain, uh, some of the relational disruption. And you can come out on the other side with people believing that they have not only been heard and taken care of, but they actually have a way forward in relationship. Uh, Dennis, would you just kind of begin walking us through those steps that we go through? And I'd love Daniel to, to comment on them. As people are listening, they hear this process. 
Sure, John, glad to. Our model begins with lowering the noise. We understand that conflict gets emotionally noisy, both on the inside of us and out among us. So we want to bring that noise down in order to move in a productive direction. That's step one. So our step two, we want to stop the violence. Uh, we like uh, Rosenberg's material on nonviolent communication, and it's a tool we often use. And we want to stop any violence. And a lot of people don't understand that how they use their words can be violent, even when they're telling the truth. So we want to help people back away from physical violence, of course, but also verbal, mental, and psychological violence that might happen because they're unaware of their communication habits. For step three, we want to silence the shame, those identity messages that create a lot of confusion for a person understanding themselves, and we, then we want to help them move forward in a truthful understanding of who they are. Step four, we're going to ask people to recognize that they've been hanging on pretty tightly for their own personal reason or their own personal gain. We would call that entitlement. So we're going to ask them to move in a direction where they accept that they're not entitled to the satisfaction they want. As important as the issue may be, we're going to ask people to loosen their grip on that thing that they demand or the certain way they think the conflict should process out. Lastly, once we've moved through steps one to four, we get to step five, where we help the parties move forward into a place of empathy and looking at the conflict from other perspectives and understanding themselves and the other better. Oftentimes in this case, you know, this is where they identify their own vulnerabilities and see the vulnerabilities in the other end and possibly even some woundedness that's been exacerbating the conflict. Hopefully the parties will develop compassion for each other and that takes them in a healing direction. So those are our steps of our conflict model. Lower the noise, stop the violence, silence the shame, drop the entitlement, and move to empathy and compassion. I see so much overlap in what my framework as well. I think in terms of lowering the noise, Without hearing your context, what I immediately thought of was regulation, is we need to be able to regulate what's happening inside of us because so often we don't realize that we're flooded, we're overwhelmed, our neurology is on fire. And in order to be able to have a productive and helpful conversation, we have to, as you say, lower the noise and regulate. Yeah, and when we talk about lowering the noise, uh, we also are talking about our emotions specifically, mm -hmm. lowering the emotional noise. Because, you know, when in a conflict, often there is just a lot of often verbal and certainly a lot of psychological and emotional noise going on that keeps us from being able to hear ourselves and hear one another. Um, a lot of times we, we notice that uh, emotions, well, we believe that emotions are caused by one of three things, our expectations, our needs, and our perceptions. And so when you have an expectation that's unmet, you're going to have an emotion around that. When you have a need that either is met or not met, you're going to feel good or bad about that. Uh, if you perceive someone has a thought or a feeling about you that is not true, then that's going to affect how you are going to respond to them. So that's when we talk about lowering the noise. And, and I think that's what you're talking about. Regulation is just understanding 
how and why we're responding emotionally the way we are. Another piece that we talk about is when someone is really being loud, for example, a child or a spouse or a coworker. I was in a conversation the other day where a woman was telling me in her workplace, her boss and the, the president, vice president, they, they like to use volume as their method of getting their point across. And, uh, and so it just is a yelling, loud environment often, especially when things don't go the way they think they should have gone. I tell a lot of parents and I tell a lot of spouses that and coworkers that if another person is coming at you really, really loudly, that there's yelling, screaming, the, the volume is high. The first thing I say is ignore the volume and listen to the words. Because when someone is angry, they're going to be the most truthful about what they actually feel. So if you can actually listen to the words the person is saying as they're screaming at you and say those back to them, you're going to be saying probably some of the closest things to the truth about what they actually believe. So that's what we yeah. talk about when we're talking about lowering noise. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. In fact, it's, it's interesting. The person who I first kind of was learning what he would term as peacemaking or conciliation model, his name's Ken Sandy, he eventually shifted away from more mediation work and conciliation work to trying to what he would describe as getting upstream of conflict, which is all about emotional intelligence, emotional regulation. And what he noticed is that, oh my goodness, we can actually by raising awareness emotionally of ourselves and of others and being more emotionally attuned. Imagine that it cuts down on like destructive conflict. And so I do fully agree that being able to step back with a reflective and regulatory approach is so critical. You will not have anything good happen when you are in a place of being flooded. It's not going to lead to productive conversation. And so even being able to exercise the discipline of saying, I just need to give myself two minutes to breathe. Like, and I come back to this conversation. Great. That's probably much better than having, uh, having it out. And I love that, you know, being able to try to listen, kind of silencing out that noise um, in terms of no the volume as you were describing it and really paying attention to the words. Cause you're right. There's some pretty deep stuff happening often in anger. I think this is where the leader becomes so important. In, in understanding their own emotional well-being. Because if a leader can have emotional intelligence to recognize that they're starting to escalate, they can then tamp down on that enough to listen through the noise. And then that's going to set a, a good direction in any conflict. But it starts with the leader understanding themselves deeply. I've been having uh, conversations with a number of leaders trying to figure out their own trigger points so that when they get hit, they know to start dressing their internal noise and then they can lead this emotional and sometimes very messy person in front of them. Yes, I, I totally agree. And if you want to be a non-anxious presence that helps regulate and contain emotional dysregulation, you have to start with you. And you can't come into a room and basically tell everyone, stop being anxious and expect that to be helpful. Um, because guess what? You just transmitted your own anxiety. Now it's even escalated and double the interest of anxiety in the room. And so it, it is 
I would even argue as much as 50 to 60%, if one would be so bold as to give it a percentage of the leader's work is internal in stepping into that space. Or any other thoughts mm-hmm. around them, Daniel? Yeah, so I, I love that you are highlighting shame because I do believe that shame is such an integral part and factor in conflict, but it's often not noticed or named. You know, the Himba tribe, this, they've done some psychological experiments where they have 12 different color categories for green because they live in an indigenous area, you know, populated by lots of trees, but they don't have a color category in their language for blue. And so when they would be given a 12 different squares, one being demarcated as blue, they really struggle to see the blue square. And so one of the things that social researchers have concluded is the necessity of having categories to be able, psychological categories, vocabulary to name and to make sense of our reality. So when you give people a a name like shame, it helps them make sense of what they're actually experiencing, the sensations of it that they don't realize they are because it's, I promise you, it's playing out. It shows up interpersonally because connection and vulnerability and shame, they all go hand in hand. So I I love the emphasis on shame and I love that you are focusing on it and helping people identify how it shows up in their bodies, how it shows up in the stories they tell themselves, because it's all going to be interconnected to their sense of identity. Yeah. We found that to be a powerful catalyst, which is why we put it uh, in the Mm -hmm. process. Daniel, as you, uh, as you're thinking through your experiences as someone who works, obviously, with a lot of people in conflict, a lot of people in crisis in your career, do you have a, a story or a, an example of um, something you've entered into that you know, you've worked through and you kind of used these principles and, and uh, they've come out on the other side? You've demonstrated that you know, conflict can be a, a healthy and productive process. And I will share that. And I also just make a comment on the remove the violence and a couple of other pieces, if you don't mind, because I just wanted to highlight, I love how you have basically in remove the violence, what you're doing is also highlighting power dynamics because power dynamics are involved in every single conflict. And so the coercive use of power is often seen in some form of violence. And, and I think that there's ways that leaders can use it and people can use power coercively, but also they can use it in ways that are, they abdicate the power that they have to exercise. And that also creates harm through neglect and abandonment. So I love that you guys are highlighting that piece of it. You know, maybe even just to speak to that, there was um, a mediation in which uh, it actually launched my (laughs) entire um, focus on this area where basically I began to notice there was something going on in the room that I wasn't really quite able to name. And what it was, was there was power and abuse dynamics occurring. And so what ended up occurring is that I, through a series of failure, because I had not noticed the power imbalance and the power dynamics that were happening in the room, I eventually ended up having and getting to go back to the the person who was harmed, the victim, and being able to repair by acknowledging and taking responsibility for the ways I didn't handle the mediation well. I asked what they needed and what restitution I could offer and provide, and they gave me some steps to take, and I took those steps, and um, and there was real healing that occurred. And so I actually brought that one up because it involved me not handling well some of these uh, situations, and it actually catalyzed my desire to 
better steward power within these sorts of situations. I also think of another story I've been given permission to share. It's not necessarily related to uh, me, but it was a situation where someone came out of school and they were in an accounting role and a leadership role. They were kind of overseeing this company's finances. And they, this company had several other subsidiaries. And when it came to filing taxes, suddenly they realized this person, oh my goodness, I have not put the right uh, number, EIN number down for all of the subsidiaries. I only put down the one number, which means this, they actually then broke the law in not filing taxes for like these 10 other subsidiaries, which meant hefty, hefty penalties. So this person goes to the boss and he had a choice. Do I avoid vulnerability? Am I listening to my shame? <laughs> right? There's so much of what's happening in that moment for him, but he chose to take responsibility and say, Hey, I messed up. And the boss basically said, you know, what does your wife do again? And he said, well, she's a nurse. Yeah. Okay. So like she takes care of babies in the NICU. Yep. Well, here's the thing. That's life and death. This is just money. And in that moment, it set this person on a trajectory that changed their life because it changed how they were experiencing themselves in this, in this situation where there was potential for great destructive conflict uh, and penalty. And it actually began for that person to transform how they were going to do business and how they're going to practice business. They eventually ended up becoming you know, owner of their own company and doing all sorts of different things. But that moment of them experiencing empathy, compassion was profoundly transformative in all aspects of life. And so I just offer that up to say, even in our businesses, we have the opportunities to extend grace and kindness and love that, is tra that can transform people and actually lead to transformation of the world. I know because I've actually experienced that this person is so committed to the generosity of helping other people. They have served and, uh, and enabled so many people to actually have access to service and, and be able to have access to care. It's profoundly transformative. And so as a leader, you have the potential to transform people's experience by giving them these connection points of grace and kindness. And I really do believe in the power of love to transform people. In terms of the, the drop entitlements, I love, again, how you're inviting people to focus on their attitude and focus on what their desires are, which, by the way, the desire is neutral, probably. It's probably healthy and good and appropriate. But if it becomes a demand, if it becomes something that you feel entitled to demand something of, that's where it, it's good in its proper orbiting system. But if that planet of your desire gets a little bit out of whack and disproportionate, it can throw the entire ecosystem off. So it's an invitation to help get desire back into the right orbit. And when it comes to empathy and compassion, I absolutely firmly believe that kindness and love can transform people. And I actually will tell people too, if you want to help, uh, I give people kind of a test and say, if you want to know if it's safe enough to engage in a conflict or a conflict resolution conversation, here are three basic questions you can ask yourself. First, is the person open and willing to hearing feedback? Do they demonstrate humility? Humility to receive feedback regarding their impact they're having on people. 
That is test number one. Test number two is do they care? Is there empathy and compassion? Do they care about the impact they have on people? And then third, is there a willingness to take responsibility for the impact they're having? If the answer to those questions is no, then depending on where you're at in the organization, you're probably going to need help because it's not going to be resolved just interpersonally, you going to that person. Um, that person may not be a safe person. That person may need some help. That person may be you know, in need of some assistance. So uh, just in terms of the empathy, compassion piece, I firmly uh, affirm that and think that that's actually one of the criteria I use to help people even assess if it's safe enough to have conversations. Do you see and sense that people care about the impact they're having on others? We had uh, the opportunity to be part of a webinar, an HBR webinar, a couple of weeks ago. A gal named Jacqueline Carter, who works with Potential Project, she talked about uh, compassionate leadership. And they've done a number of interesting uh, research pieces. But one was interesting about one issue about this was interesting was that empathy and compassion actually operate at two different places of your brain physically. Is different from pity and sympathy in that empathy actually is the ability to listen and feel along with the other person what they're feeling. But it's different than compassion, which is going beyond the, the sense of I'm feeling this with you to here's some actions I'm willing to take on your behalf to move you to a place of benefit based on what you're feeling and experiencing. And this idea that in a conflict, our goal, if it's a healthy conflict, is to move to compassion for the other person. And people sometimes misread that. They misread compassion as sympathy or pity, but it's not. Compassion is actually a very healthy place for us to go on the other side of conflict because it's my willingness and my commitment to be part of, of what makes your life better. And uh, sometimes when we're in a conflict, we perceive that the other person is against us just automatically because they don't agree with us. And one of the things we have to get around in a conflict is just because I may have a different opinion from you doesn't mean that I don't have your back, that I'm not going to take care of you, that I'm not going to make sure that, that things go well for you. We'll figure out how to solve this problem, but my relationship with you is not at stake here. And that's something we have to make sure as leaders, we articulate very clearly. I think it was John Gottman who said, trust is essentially, I am believing that you're going to operate with my best interest at heart. Like that's a fundamental heart attitude and posture is that I'm, I believe that you are operating with the best interest in, for me, that that's a way of understanding trust. And what you just said kind of resonates with what I think he was suggesting is, look, unity requires difference and disagreement. You cannot have unity without difference or disagreement. If you do, it's just uniformity, right? So in order to get to that place, you have to be able to operate with people's best interests at heart. And I'll tell you, if you do that as a leader, people will respond and want to engage. Even if they don't agree with your plan, if they feel like you've really heard and care about them, they're going to get on board. They may not agree with like, hey, I wish you would go this way. But man, if they feel heard and they feel seen, that connection need is met, 
they're likely to be aligned with you and move in that direction. These two conversations, Daniel, around conflict have been amazing. So helpful. We really appreciate who you are and your experiences. Uh, we appreciate your heart so much. It's such a delight to, to hear how you address conflict in a healthy way. And Dennis and I so much appreciate who you are and what you're doing at Live at Peace. So thank you so much for joining us on the Thrive Space podcast today. If you'd like to reach out to Daniel, you can email him at dteeter at liveatpeace.org, or you can find us at the Thrive Space podcast and we'll get you connected. Let's make this practical for you right now with a couple of questions to think about. What is the cost to your company because of poor conflict and crisis management? Do you have a plan for handling conflict in a healthy way? What resources do you and your team need? Who do you need to support you and how? We're glad you joined us today for part two of our conversation with Daniel Teeter of Live at Peace. We look forward to continuing conversations that will bring life and ideas that will cultivate your growth and success as a leader. You can access other episodes of the Thrive Space podcast and get more great information at thrivespacepodcast.com. We publish a monthly blog that's available on our website, along with a number of other helpful resources. See you next month at the Thrive Space Podcast.